Well, this morning uh, I was, uh, it was kind of interesting because um, I'm going to be basically covering something that I wrote several years ago, uh, a sermon that I'd given called Take Up Your Cross. Um, just thinking about that, thinking about the study I'd done on it and, and um, what I'd gained from that. And uh, he'd, the Lord worked it out to, that uh, Mason contacted me, and, and I'm bringing that to you all today. So I, I hope it's of some benefit today. Uh, let's look at Luke 9, verse 23. <clears throat> and everything I read is from the ESV version. So Luke 9, 23. This is Jesus speaking. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That verse right there, uh, just looking at that, it's a pretty weighty thing that Jesus was saying to his disciples to take up your cross daily. And if we think about the language we use today, um, it's not really the type of language that most of us use in our conversations today. Uh, we do kind of use that flippantly as though this is the cross I have to bear or, or something like that, but we don't really fully look at the depth of what that statement is, um, many of us often. Uh, so we all know what the cross is, and many of us, you know, we've seen depictions of the crucifixion. Um, many of us here have, have probably done quite a bit of study on it. But what Jesus was saying in that single passage carried much more weight to the first century Jews than it does to us today. The meaning has not changed, just the understanding of it. So I'm, I'm not getting at the, the meaning still the same meaning. It's just in our, our cultural context, we don't understand the weightiness of it. So to understand this better, um, I, would, I believe it would be really helpful to understand crucifixion and more specifically how Jesus was crucified. So if you would turn with me to uh, Luke 23, we're going to read through um, Luke 23, verse, beginning with verse 32, and just reading how this one gospel uh, records the crucifixion. Um, and just as a side note, it was, it was pretty amazing that, uh, um, I, I was on the road a lot this week and, uh, um, like every sermon I was hearing on the radio was dealing with this, this set of passages or of course it's leading up this Palm Sunday and leading up to that, but it, it was just, it was nice hearing all those different aspects of it. So, um, Luke 23 uh, verses 30, starting with verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, or Golgotha, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. 
One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemn. Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Let's see. And, the, and all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what they had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So this is the account of the crucifixion. This is one of the gospel accounts. And uh, again, I'm confident that almost everyone here is very familiar with, with these accounts of the crucifixion. And... Uh, We've read about it, we've seen movies, uh, we've, we've thought about it, um, so we're all familiar with it. But how many of us spend time really thinking about the crucifixion of our Lord and its meaning? So let's get in a little bit to about crucifixion. Crucifixion is painful. Crucifixion was a means of torturing and ultimately executing a person. The Persians are generally credited with the invention of this barbaric practice, at first using it for individual or small group executions, and later evolving the practice to simultaneously execute thousands of people. I've read accounts of, I think, almost 50,000 people at once being executed by the Persians through crucifixion. Uh, the Romans were quick to adopt the crucifixion as a means of execution until it was outlawed by Constantine, nearly a 1,000 years after the Persians invented it. So as a general rule, Roman citizens could not be crucified, it was reserved only for conquered people, for notorious criminals, and those who posed a threat to national security. The Romans were very systematic in carrying out crucifixion to ensure the crucified were thoroughly tortured and demeaned in their last hours of life and then killed. Uh, this was done publicly to deter crime and help maintain public order. It was done as a point. Um, we know from the gospel accounts that leading up to his actual crucifixion, Christ was flogged and beaten uh, during the illegal trials of Jesus, which happened uh, all night long. Uh, he was continually slapped and punched in the face. Uh, when he was brought to Pilate, Pilate handed him over to the guards to be scourged. Uh, this is, a, is consistent with historical accounts. So the historical accounts of a crucifixion, say scourging, usually took place before crucifixion. Uh, the condemned were beaten or scourged by stripping them naked tying them to a post, and then two Roman soldiers would alternate turns, beating them across their backs uh, with a leather whip, which was called a cap of nine tails, that had pieces of bones and lead balls tied in it. Uh, after the limit of 39 strikes, they could only hit the condemned 39 times. I don't know the significance of that number, but that's what they were allowed to do. Uh, had been reached, the prisoner was literally a mess, uh, the lead balls had the effect of pulverizing the muscle, so it would pound the muscle, bring the blood up to the surface, and then the bones would uh, cause deep lacerations. Uh, 
um, and roughly 360 lacerations, three inches long up to an inch deep across the back of the condemned. So the entire purpose of this brutality was to make the crucifixion process more painful. Uh, the Romans were very good at what they did. Uh, then the prisoner was then forced to carry the crossbar or the patibulum, which was the, the piece where they were, uh, the arms were outstretched and nailed to. Uh, they, were, they were forced to carry that, which weighed roughly about 110 pounds. And I don't know if any of you have ever carried about 100 pounds on your back, but it's hard to do in good physical shape. But after all that torture, can you even imagine having to carry that? They were carried across their shoulders to the place of crucifixion. After reaching the place of execution, the victim was nailed to the patibulum with arms outstretched through each wrist. The patibulum was then raised with the victim in tow, so they just pulled the person up into the air by their wrists um, against, against the cross, the upright, the stipes. Uh, they were positioned in the upright post or the stipes, and then sometimes a small peg was provided for the victim to stand on, but also sometimes they did nail the feet to the cross. So this is all historical, historically accurate. This is what occurred. Um, the whole point of the, the nailing the feet or providing a peg to stand on was uh, done to extend the life of the victim, often for days, by preventing suffocation, because if they were just hanging there, they'd suffocate on their own weight and not be able to, to breathe. So my first point after all of that, point number one, taking up your cross is painful. Taking up your cross is painful. So thinking on that, thinking about what Jesus said about each, each one has to take up his own cross, it doesn't really sound like something any of us would gladly raise our hands and volunteer for, does it? Uh, I found this kind of funny quote, um, Francis Chan, uh, he's an author and a pastor. Uh, he said, when I was in high school, I seriously considered joining the Marines. This was when they first came out with the commercials for the few, the proud, the Marines. What turned me off was that in those advertisements, everyone was always running, always, and I hate running. But you know what? I didn't bother to ask if they would modify the rules for me so I could run less and maybe also do fewer push-ups. That would have been pointless and stupid, and I knew it. Everyone knows that if you sign up for the Marines, you have to do whatever they tell you. They own you. So that's reality, and that's where many of us live. Uh, we want the love and power of Jesus, uh, but we don't want the suffering. Giving up your things, your rights, your expectations is a painful process, but we should expect it if we want to follow Christ. So the first thing is taking up your cross is painful. The next point, um, the Apostle Paul wrote something interesting, um, and it can be peculiar at first glance, about Jesus' crucifixion. So if we look at 1 Corinthians 1.18, says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Um, and then if we skip down to verse 22, it says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
Um, I don't know what version it is. It might be NIV. I'm not sure. But it says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Uh, folly, foolishness. So what makes the message of the cross foolishness or folly and a stumbling block to the unbelieving world? As I mentioned earlier, the Romans reserved crucifixion for slaves, for conquered peoples, and the worst criminals. These were the dregs of the Roman world. In fact, mentioning crucifixion and the word cross was considered taboo in the upper echelons of the Roman culture. It was a forbidden word. You didn't say cross. Uh, So to the Gentiles, the Romans, the very idea of a god, let alone the only god, suffering such a pitiful death in a very demeaning manner was utter foolishness. That just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And then for the Jews, crucifixion took on an even more demeaning view. Because the Romans had authority over the Jews, they administered the death penalty. Actually, one of the, uh, uh, one of the signs that Christ was to come was the, uh, when Shiloh comes, the, the rod will be taken. Uh, the, the Jewish people lost the authority about 20 years, give or take, before uh, Jesus' birth. They lost the authority to institute the death penalty. The Romans took that away. Up until that point, they had it, and then the Romans took it away. So they lost that authority to stone people, to do any kind of, any kind of death penalty. They had to go and ask permission from the Romans. Um, and the Romans loved to use it against the lowly Jews. They loved pushing their authority in their face, and they loved, they loved executing Jews. Uh, again, crucifixion was taboo in polite conversation. But more than just their distaste for the Roman practice, Jews understood that anyone who was crucified, they, they believed, was cursed by God. Based on Deut- Deuteronomy 21, 23, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. So to the Jews, it was, an, it was impossible that Jehovah God would provide the Messiah in the form of a man from Nazareth uh, and let the unclean Gentiles murder him on the unspeakable cross bringing him under God's curse, God cursing God is an impossibility. So, so that's the mindset there. So take a foolish idea to the Gentiles and an impossible contradiction to the Jews, and you can see why the crowds mocked him on Calvary. And so I'll just I'll look at some of these from Luke. Uh, verse 35, it said, The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Verse 36, the Gentiles mocked him. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. That one's unbelievable to me. It's it's amazing. The Romans couldn't care less who he was. He was just another Jew to them. But they openly mocked the Lord within the context of what was going on. They said, if you're the king of Jews, save yourself. So you see that. uh, they're, They're mocking him. Uh, The Roman government mocked him in verse 37. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Uh, Pilate had that written. Uh, Verse 39, The unsaved condemned mocked him. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And some of the other gospel accounts it says both, both of the criminals were mocking him. So you see up until a point they were both mocking him until the power of God saved the the other one we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit but 
you're hanging on a cross and you're screaming insults at a man dying in the same way you're dying. Think about that. Think about spiritually what that means, the, the depth of depravity there, that you could, you could, see, you could see how, how, how the depth of sin there that you would openly mock somebody that's being executed in the same way you are without any shame whatsoever. So point two is taking up your cross makes you the target of mockery. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, Mockery is the unintentional homage which, which falsehood pays to truth. Mockery is the unintentional homage which falsehood pays to truth. Scorn is the unconscious praise which sin gives to holiness. And we all know he was known as the prince of, prince of preachers, and he was well familiar with the reality of being mocked and scorned often publicly. And I've read, I don't know if it was written by him or uh, it was just a side note, but basically he had, he had a lot of instruction for street preaching as to where to set up your, your uh, stand where you were, uh, not near short walls where people could lob rocks and and things over the over the wall to hit you because he was so used to that. Uh, it, um, he was used to being being scorned and mocked. Nobody likes to be made fun of. Uh, we will all go out of our way to hide, go out of our way to hide our faith, which shouldn't even be possible. Um, from friends, relatives, and co-workers to avoid a little jab at our cost. Uh, there's an entire church movement, and it's. It's kind of waning, but it's taking other shapes now. It's called the Emerging Church Conversation. I don't know if you've read anything about that, but um, it goes out of its way not to be offensive to the world. Even the name conversation, the whole point they say conversation, it's a postmodern word. They don't want to use movement or something like that because that's too strong, too strong of language. Uh, They don't want to be labeled as fundamentalists or something. Um, again, it's that whole idea of look like the world and the world will want to join us. And, uh, you know, we wouldn't want anyone to get offended and call us names. But if we really want to know Jesus, and more importantly, if we want Jesus to really know us, then we have to make ourselves the target of mockery. Uh, the next point, let's look at John nineteen twenty-eight. says after this Jesus knowing that all was now finished said to fulfill the scripture I thirst a jar full of sour wine stood there so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth when Jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit so after Jesus endured all the torture and all the insults he died crucifixion was agonizing in every way um, and I don't know how, how many, if you've read, uh, accounts where people try to say that Jesus didn't die on the cross, uh, where he feigned or, or, um, maybe he was, he was mostly dead, but not all the way dead. Um, there's, there's several of those accounts out there that, that people say that he didn't, he didn't really die on the cross. Therefore he didn't, he didn't rise from the dead. Um, they don't really understand what crucifixion was. Uh, there was an, uh, a, 
an article written by a physician, uh, Dr. C. Truman Davis. It was called A Physician Analyzes the Crucifixion. And basically he was looking at old accounts and looking at uh, post-mortem drawings and things from that period and looking at them through the lens of medicine to see if any, any humid, human could live through a crucifixion. So he says in this, as Jesus slowly sagged down with more weight on the nails in the wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shot along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists were putting pressure on the median nerve, large nerve trunks which traversed the mid-wrist and hand. As he pushed himself upward to avoid his stretching torment, he placed his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there was searing agony as the nail tore through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of his feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurred. As the arms fatigued, great waves of cramp swept over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps came the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by the arm, the pectoral muscles, the large muscles of the chest, were paralyzed, and the intercostal muscles, the small muscles between the ribs, were unable to act. Air could be drawn into the lungs, but could not be exhaled. Jesus fought to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. So typically, the condemned were allowed to suffer in this manner until succumbing to exhaustion, which could take several days. But to hurry along the process, the Roman guards would often break the legs of the victims, causing suffocation and death in a matter of minutes. So if we look at verse 31 in the same chapter, it says, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So notice that when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. And just to make sure, the Roman guard pierced Jesus' side with the spear into his heart. The flow of fluid and then blood from the wound indicates Jesus had been dead for probably at least 30 minutes before being pierced. And again, this is, uh, that's information taken from this medical examiner's look at just the physical aspect of the crucifixion. So the two crucified alongside our Lord died at the hands of the soldiers, but our Lord died according to his own will. Look back at verse 30. He gave up his spirit. Jesus died on the cross, but he died willingly and not by anyone else's volition. So the point here is taking up your cross is fatal. Jesus said in John 10, 17 through 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. Nobody took Jesus' life. Nobody had the authority to do it. He made himself a sacrifice, the Passover lamb. And likewise, we have to willingly and humbly give our lives to Christ. It may mean to actually physically give up our lives. To many first century Christians, it meant exactly that. To many of our present day brothers and sisters in China or Islamic countries, 
That's exactly what it means. But it also means dying to ourselves, dying to our wants, dying to our rights, dying to everything of this world, and living solely for Christ. Taking up your cross is fatal. But that's not the end of the story. And that's, I think, the, one of the most beautiful things about uh, the crucifixion, about Christ's death. When the Holy Spirit drags you to the cross, it's painful, you are mocked, and you, are will- and you willingly die, but that's not the end. It's through death on the cross that we find life. So Mark 8.35, Jesus said, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. So the point here is taking up your cross leads to life. So let's go back to where we started in, in Luke Luke 23, uh, verse 40. This is, this is about the, the criminals. Notice the reaction of the second criminal of the cross in verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And then if we skip down to verse 47, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. And in one of the other gospels, it says, surely he was the, uh, the son of God. Um, that's the power of the cross, the power of the gospel right there. You have a a man hanging on the cross who moments before was open, openly rebuking Jesus, and then, then the Holy Spirit worked in his life, and he saw that Jesus was a righteous man. Jesus was the Messiah, is the Messiah, and it caused a change in his heart. And all he did, all he did was he asked Jesus to remember him. Isn't that amazing? I, I, I was thinking about this uh, just a couple days ago about, first of all, this man had no way, um, he, was, he, he admitted his guilt. He said, I'm a guilt, he was a, he was a robber. So he had no way to, to work out, to work through, to pay for what he had done. Okay? He had no way of, of doing good acts to make up for all the wrong he had done. He's there dying, okay? So he can't, he can't work for salvation, okay? And then secondly, after he, he speaks to Jesus and asks him, he says, you're the son of God. Remember me. That's all he asks. It was just a simple prayer. Jesus says, you'll be with me. This very day you'll be with me, with my Father in heaven. There was no way for him to do good works after accepting Christ, after after asking for forgiveness, it was it was by grace through faith in Christ, and that was it, completely right at that moment. And Jesus Himself said, "You're going to be in heaven." I mean, what what more proof is there right there? 
it, it's just it's beautiful. He was he was on the cross. He was in so much agony. You read about all that agony. That man on the cross was in that agony, but the agony in his soul was greater because he knew the physical wasn't it. It wasn't the end of everything. And so he grabbed on to Christ. Likewise, looking at that centurion, here is a Roman. Here's a man that's over a hundred other men. Here's a man that is uh, likely polytheistic. He's executing this man. There's no reason for him in the world to think anything more of Jesus than he's just another filthy Jew that I am executing. That's what was in, in the minds of those Romans. That's all they were thinking. And yet he looks at Jesus and he says, surely this was a righteous man. He looks at, he looks at how Jesus reacted. When Jesus, Jesus uttered a prayer at the very beginning, he, he spoke five times on the cross, and the first time he spoke was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And think about how that prayer worked in certain people's lives. It worked in the life of, of the thief. It worked in the life of the centurion who was in charge of executing him. How, how the Holy Spirit worked in those, those aspects. And so that's just, again, it's showing the power of the cross, the power of the gospel, that before God, through his Son, laid the foundations of the earth, he knew that man would fall from grace and require a substitutionary sacrifice for, for redemption. Knowing that the Son was the only sacrifice worth enough to pay for the sin of mankind, he willingly became a man, being fully man and fully God, Christ lived a perfect life without sin and willingly, willingly gave his life on the cross to pay our debt of sin in full. Three days later, Christ conquered death and left his tomb empty. At the cross, your debt was paid in full. Remember, Jesus said, it is finished. He said, it is paid in full. That was it. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. It was already done by and through Jesus. All you have to do is come to the cross, lay down your old life, and take up your new one. And that's the message, the power of the cross. So to close it out, we'll read again Luke nine twenty three through 24. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it.